everyone. Welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Niv Odd, and we cover the topic of standalone atrial fibrillation. And we get into his paper that was published in 2020 that looked at off-pump standalone AFib surgery, on-pump standalone AFib surgery, and most importantly, probably the conversions from off-pump to on-pump standalone AFib surgery. We also discuss these results in terms of the Laos 3 study and how left atrial appendage management is part of the equation in standalone AFib treatment. And then we finish our conversation with the discussion of the CryoICE trial, which is an FDA trial that Atricure is sponsoring in order to get atrial fibrillation indication for cryotherapy. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Niv Odd about standalone atrial fibrillation. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I am honored to have the opportunity to chat with our distinguished guest today. He really is an expert in minimally invasive cardiac surgery. He's a prolific surgeon scientist with nearly 200 peer-reviewed articles. He has published some of the most impactful surgical AFib articles over the past 20 years. He's a graduate of the Sackler School of Medicine at Tel Aviv University and completed his cardiac training under the tutelage of Dr. James Cox at Georgetown University. He is the editor-in-chief of Innovations, which is Technology and Techniques in Cardiothoracic and Vascular Surgery. And finally, he is currently staff at the White Oak Medical Center and adjunct professor at the University of Maryland and principal investigator of the Atricure Cryo-ICE trial. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Niv Odd. Thank you, Amit, for this kind of introduction. Thank Great. you. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm very excited as you are. Great. So I wanted to start our conversation today by discussing your paper, Surgical Treatment for Standalone Atrial Fibrillation in North America. And for the listeners, this was a, a paper that was published in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2020. And really, I think there's so much to unpack in this paper. It's really full of so much great information. So maybe you can just start us off by telling us why you felt compelled to specifically look at the surgical treatment of standalone AFib. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I, I was often asked by administrators, by coders, by billing activities on one hand and by patients and cardiologists on the other hand, of uh, what is really going on with atrial fibrillation surgery uh, beyond the walls of the institution I'm at. If it was before at Fairfax, where I was the chair for almost a decade, and now in this new hospital. Quite frankly, I didn't have a good answer. This is mainly because um, looking back and trying to uh, recognize some of of data uh, based on North American experience, 
etc., etc. It was the data that's coming from the industry is important. It is designed to show one aspect or another aspect of it that may have some bias or noise in it and so on and so forth. So we applied there for a project called PATH. It's one of those projects that you pay for the data to the STS and you run your own analysis on it, specifically to look into standalone procedures for atrial fibrillation. There were two main aims in that, in that search when we got the, the permit, so to speak. The first was to understand what, how often it's been performed in the U.S. or North America to that, that, to that extent. And secondly, to know a little bit more of what's being done. Interestingly, the, the search period basically cut it in the middle because only the latest version from 2014 at the data, in the SCS database was with some details about what was really beyond just surgical treatment for other fibrillations, yes or no. Now, as I hope many of our listeners, the SCS is an unbelievable tool to look into outcome, complications, survival, et cetera, et cetera, for 30 days, but nothing beyond that. Right. So we felt that putting out that information is going to help us to get some basic numbers, understanding on trends, and try to better understand how we can then pass this moving forward with the next papers that we want to publish and looking into outcome, long-term right. outcome with rhythm, I mean, not, not just variability. Sure. Yeah. You know what, what I think is really interesting is how the original maze data, if you go back to Dr. Cox's data, that was essentially standalone data as well. And so we had years of standalone data from Dr. Cox. Then we had all this concomitant data that came out, ABR maze, cabbage maze, mitral maze, of which you've written tons of papers. And so I thought it was really interesting that we almost came back full circle to have now this standalone paper that you've published in 2020. Another thing I thought was really interesting and really quite compelling is how you broke down the groups. So in your paper, you really talk about three groups. You talk about the on-pump maze group, the off-pump maze group. And then I thought what was really interesting was the off-pump group that required conversion. And you talk about whether that was increasing the size of the surgical port, incision, whatever you want to call it, or actually converting to on-pump with the cross-clamp. Can you talk about why you thought that was an important way to break down the groups? I think it, it, it was part of the discussion of the working group among us. And um, on one hand, we have a surgical procedure that we know, all of us that are dealing with it, whether you do it one way or another, it's much more effective than a single or double catheter-based procedure and so on and so forth. And there is a lot of information on the safety of those procedures by the cardiologists, by the EPs, especially, you know, a famous paper by our good friend, Hugh Hawkins from Johns Hopkins, that, that actually said, I think, the foundations for that. So we felt that the first question is whether it's safe or not. And the general answer was yes, but then we saw this, recognized that noise, that was a, a blip of what we want to say less than expected or disappointing outcome, which has uh, some major complication associated with it. Now, the point is that it's always important to show it to others and say, listen, anything we do can have consequences. But on the other hand, what we felt is important is to communicate 
with surgeons that surgical treatment for atrial fibrillation is not a side job. Like no one there to do off-pump cabbage or on-pump cabbage unless they are you know, proficient in it. But we felt that in AFib especially, this kind of, that we have among us cardiac surgeons with the responsibility and commitment to surgeons broke to some extent. So we felt that it's important to actually communicate with our community and others that if off-pump procedures or on-pump procedures are being done wrong, there are major consequences to it. And then comes all the interpretation, you know, are you in this group or in that group? But I can tell you, this was actually the way we looked at it moving forward. We wanted to set the foundations that we can actually look and say, okay, look, in, in 2017, there were 6% conversion rate with mortality of X. And in 2021, we had only 3% conversion rate. So I think it's important for the progress of the field without my own opinion or your opinion or anybody else about what works better. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting about this paper, I think it was a really honest, if you will, expression of what's going on in the field. So you talk about how yeah. there was an increase in the number of standalone procedures being done. There was a greater increase in the off-pump category and then you capture this idea that maybe, and tell me if I'm wrong, that within this off-pump category, there were more centers doing these cases. They were doing less of them in general. And so it almost kind of expresses this idea that people are in this learning curve of Maeve's surgery that they're going through in the off-pump setting which leads to conversions. And in that population that requires conversions, they have worse outcomes. Do you think that's an honest way to kind of talk about at least the findings of growth, if you will, in the field? Do you think that's accurate? I think that's one way to look at it. And that's a really very important description of it. I really agree with everything you said, but there is another point here that we couldn't actually pinpoint and communicate the findings in, in a better way is, for instance, how come that, let's say, over a period of a study, when you have 1,400 procedures being done every year and about 80% or more off-pump, how come the conversion rate incidence didn't change, if anything, maybe even increased? And the only interpretation, and we I wrote it in a very careful way. And the conclusion is that because of that phenomena, I believe that many surgeons started the procedure, had a complication and abandoned it. So the growth that we have is not like in your center that's considered to be you know, one of the, of the premier centers in the world because you're doing it all the time. And you learn and, and you evolve with your technique. As well. So your chances to have a conversion now compared to five years ago diminish in, in you know, several tenfold. So I think that the other important point here is to show, okay, you rush into it. You are not prepared. You have a major complication. You'll never do it again. So basically you have the entire field because we don't have the growth, the natural growth of procedures as we say, well, the learning curve is something of the past. So every time we have new centers and the learning curve is kind of a constant, it's there all the time. Right, this is right. something I'm really bothered about. 
Yeah, definitely. And I was I was wondering how that was playing out in the numbers as well, because you talk about how before there were about a hundred of these standalone AFibs surgeries happening in each center. And even though there was this growth, that number has dropped down to 60 procedures being done yeah. per center. Do you think that occurred precisely because of what you said? There were surgeons who were maybe were doing on pump and then tried an off pump and had an untoward complication and then stopped doing it? Or what do you think led to that decline? Well, I don't know the answer, but uh, based on, on the experience we have talking with our colleagues all the time, we know that the flu of younger surgeons that are trying to capture volume when they're in their own centers and they are less experienced than you and I, although you are very young surgeon, <laughs> uh, but very experienced. And things, are, I think, are a combination of, of stuff. The other thing is that I'm doing, as opposed to what you do on the basis, although I, I, I do what, what you guys do also, but what I'm mainly doing is the on-pump minimally invasive procedure is becoming less of a mainstream and an outlier now and not so many know how to do it. So if my centers was doing, you know, more of these before, now I'm doing less of those before because of sorts of myths and other aspects that are important of the evolution of the collaboration with the electrophysiologist that, and there are some perception about that what I do is not a collaboration versus what others are doing and so on and so forth. So I think it's a combination of all kinds of things and also the, the push by the industry to open new centers, new accounts. But when you say this way, it may reflect bad on the industry. That's not what I mean. It means that the industry is doing a, a great job in educating physicians. And by so doing, they basically give them the tool to open a new account, which is in the beginning of the learning curve. And I think that's, so it's, it's a combination, it's a process, it's an evolution of, of where we are. Sure. I found at least one thing reassuring between all the patient cohorts, which was this thing that we've all been battling for a long time in kind of this common perception among either referring docs or, or people who don't quite understand is that at least across the groups, there was only about a one and a half to 2% rate of new pacemaker placement. And I thought that was so important to put in the paper because it says, look, and again, doing the maze procedure, or I should say surgical ablation, does not inherently cause heart block, does not inherently require somebody to need a, a permanent pacemaker. I thought that was really nicely pointed out in the paper. I agree. So I know that take this thing very seriously. So Message number one is pacemakers. I think that's, if you know how to do the procedures, and some of the publication, we know the procedure was not done properly, whether it's off-pump or on-pump, as you would do the two. So if you done it, do it appropriately, and you know what you're dealing with, the rate is very low. Off-pump procedures are extremely safe if done appropriately. That's another take-home message. If you look at the numbers for those that didn't have conversion, or when they, and that conversion can happen, but if you deal with conversion, with experience, there's no reason that it's going to end up with that. Because why do we have conversion? A little hole in the appendage? So in the beginning of the experience, some surgeons that are not experienced lost patience for that. It doesn't happen anymore. So it's extremely safe. And on-pump standalone procedures are extremely safe. There's slight difference between 
the two groups as well, the on-pump procedure patients were a little bit higher risk than off-pump procedure patients. So it tells you that we also use judgment here, and I assume that some of those who have done on-pump because someone like you said, well, off-pump is not going to help them. So I think it's a combination of things. So those are really important and positive message uh, out of, of, of that paper. The one negative was the very low rate of appendage exclusion in the group of patients that were done off-pump. But we know that this is since the paper was published and now with Laos and others, it's a point of emphasis to all of us. So I think this is, again, important. To show that in 2020 or 2017 data, only 50% were appendage occluded or so. And in 2021, it's already 80. And hopefully in, in 2025, it will be 95 or so, you know, like the IMA usage. Right. Yeah. I'm really glad yeah. you brought that up because I was going to ask you how you think the Laos 3 study was going to impact specifically this off pump group. Because, yeah, it was really disappointing to read that only what was it, like 56% of the off-pump group had their left atrial appendage managed. That's unacceptable, right? So how do you think that's going to specifically affect the off-pump group? I don't think that it's uh, specifically going to affect the off-pump group, but I believe that it's going to affect the entire field. When I'll answer in a, in a bit of, you know, like okay. calculated way. But, okay. but when I'm asked how many patients of mine that are coming to the operating room with atrial fibrillation, I'm treating, okay? And let's say in a concomitant setup for it, but it doesn't matter, let's say. So I say almost everyone. They say, what do you mean, close to 100%? I say, of course, close to 100%. So the, answer, the next answer is, how come? I say, well, I manage their appendage almost every time unless there is a specific contraindication. And that's almost never ever right. occurs. So if you look at it as a pyramid, where the basis of the pyramid, the white part of the pyramid, that's the, the common denominator, so to speak, is the appendage. So if you accept that concept, then you go up, I think that the appendage is basically what we do without arguing, okay, whether to do it off-pump, on-pump, this, that, and that. And I think sure. the Laos the Laos trial, although it's charged us over two and concomitant and this, that, and the other, it's another brick in that consensus that the appendage is important. And therefore, moving forward, I think every surgeon going into the operating room is saying, okay, but what about the appendage? So you do converge. There are ways to exclude the appendage. I mean, from the left side, you know, we don't have to go through this, but, but converge also very low rate of, of appendage. But I'm sure that in practice every day, including your own practice, the appendage management is close to 100%. And I think that's how Laos intersect with, with what we say. Right. Now, I'm glad you brought up convergent because I wanted to ask you, I imagine as we progress with AFib treatment, this convergent or subxiphoid approach will become more popular just for those same reasons that we had talked about earlier. And I'm assuming over time that there will be less conversions because it requires less, if you will, kind of technical expertise to do a convergent than a totally thoroscopic maze, let's say, for example. How do you think that fits in? How do you think the convergent procedure, just doing a posterior wall isolation as in the trial, forget about kind of the convergent plus additions, managing the impedance, taking down the ligament of Marshall. Where do you think that convergent procedure fits into the spectrum of 
let's say a new surgeon who wants to treat AFib probably doesn't have the skill set coming out of training. Do you think that's a reasonable place to start is with a convergent procedure? Well, I think we need another two podcasts to answer. So I think let's talk about Converge. So Converge okay. in general is an important aspect of our surgical ablation of atrial fibrillation simply because that like for the first trial from Europe, there was a study that compared patients with persistent, long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation being treated with a hybrid approach versus catheter-based procedure. And now we can say, okay, for these patients, this is how it looks, and we have some data to build on. So that's a positive. The negative part of the converge is that, as you said, it's an easier procedure, although we know that there are some devastating complications for it, if not done appropriately. But it's an easier procedure, and if you are an expert surgeon, there's no reason something will go south in, in that procedure. By saying that it's an easier procedure, and our tendency to define success of anything we do by the number of procedures we are doing, we are running a very high risk of becoming unidimensional in our treatment of atrial fibrillation. So I think the next step with Converge and understanding where Converge fits in our armamentarium is to better understand why Converge fails, how can we make Converge better if we can, and how to build a decision-making tree where you get a patient and say, this is for bilateral kind of guy, but it doesn't matter, doing a clamping and, and so on and so forth. Or you do converge, or you say, no, this is a full maze procedure done minimally invasively. Because we always compare those two, but remember in that paper, the STS, the vast majority of standalone procedures done on bypass were done through a mid-sternotomy which is, I believe, a, a big disappointment for many of us, especially myself, where I almost never do a full maze procedure, not minimally invasively. Um, there are a few instances that it was done, and most of the time the reason is that patients are so tired of AFib, that five, six ablation, and all they want is something the least fancy, most forward, so to speak, with, with good results. So they asked for its tonotomy. I have a few examples of that. But the point is that I think with all the hype around Converge and all the push of how to do it and all those kinds of things, we have to be really, really careful to maintain what we have and which is the patient's interest to be able to offer them something nobody else can offer them, which is cure from atrial fibrillation, whether you do it, but you have to keep these three options alive. So I think it's on, on all of us to now to better understand the procedure. Right. What I'm hoping for personally is that at least Convergent introduces surgeons to this idea of treating atrial fibrillation seriously, and maybe it acts as a, a trigger for them to do more open concomitant cases, and then to ultimately take that practice curve, learning curve, progression, if you will, to become a more serious AFib surgeon and then ultimately treat more atrial fibrillation. We've been talking about standalone, but we also know there's a huge deficit of treating atrial fibrillation in, in the cabbage patient, in the AVR patient. It's a little bit better in the mitral patient, but I'm also hoping that the convergent procedure can at least start to entice or introduce people into better treating atrial fibrillation in the open setting as well. I agree with everything you say, and the point is that 
the most important aspect of how we define an outcome of a procedure should be actually pushed for elimination of the 30 days outcome from AFib surgery. I think it's going to give us, imagine that patency rate was judged only by 30 days outcome for, for cabbage versus PCI. Nobody would do cabbages anymore. Right. But we know that when you go to the second, third, and definitely the fifth year, this is where you start to see the definition. So that's one thing I want to see. The second thing I want to see is, even if you do a full maze procedure, don't look at it as the only solution you're offering to the patient. Patients that fail should go to the cat lab for the EP lab to see why they failed. They didn't fail because they have atrial fibrillation for six years. They fail because patients with longer duration of atrial fibrillation have a most challenging substrate, and applying lesion is more difficult, especially consistent lesions. So I think we have to start to think this way about how we move the field forward. Just give you one, I know we need to jump to the other one, but one okay. story. Why did I start my huge database? Why did I start my huge database? We did 117 cases, and we wanted to look at the six, six months results. This is when we started Fairfax. This was the first 117 cases. I remember the number. And we had about, within the blanking period, we had about 24% of any event that, that you see once or one way or another. And some patients remained with a so-called persistent event. So when you ask yourself how many of these patients were cardioverted, okay, the answer was amazing. I thought all of them were cardioverted, but only less than 20% of them were cardioverted. When you go to the EP patient with a catheter-based procedure that have a recurrence that is more persistent at three months, 100% of them are being cardioverted. So there's a separation of, oh, it's a maze procedure in, in a cabbage patient. If it's back in AFib, it's not as interesting if you had the non-procedure. So we'll never take you back to the EP lab. And right. I think that's another step moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that's a good segue into your cryo-ice trial. So can you tell us a little bit about how you think cryo-ice will help our field, how it will add another layer to our tools? Can you talk a little bit about cryo-ice and, and why you thought that was a study that had to happen now? Well, first, it, it's an FDA trial, so it's being basically designed to approve the cryo-platform that's specific for that and make sure that it's indicated for atrial fibrillation a concomitant setup. What does it mean indicated for our listener? Today, the ICE, the cryo platforms we are using from two companies, it doesn't matter, it's the same indication. It's tissue ablation or cardiac ablation, but not specifically to treat atrial fibrillation. This is huge ramification when we go out to train, huge ramification when we go out to educate, Huge ramification when we, we want to highlight the importance of how to treat atrial fibrillation in the setting of, of coronary disease, which for our listener, if you look at the Medicare data, not at the STS data, it's, it's less than 20%. Less than 20% of patients with atrial fibrillation come from cabbage having surgical ablation. The STS is better, but it's mid-20s, only mid-20s. So I think that's the one aspect of it. The second aspect of it that we will be able in a very controlled trial that's being done prospectively and so on and so forth to show that the addition of, of the cryo machine 
uh, ablation and so on and so forth to any concomitant procedure is not going to be associated with increased morbidity related to the index procedure. Meaning that if you do a mitral valve, we do a mitral valve maze, uh, you know, you have that. And I think the other aspects that we are going to find out is, which well, we felt very important, is right now it's pretty much an open field. Oh, I, I freeze for one and a half minutes, you freeze for three minutes, the other one freezes for five minutes, almost right. like the same way with the temp. I do 10 times, you do two times, and so on and so forth. We have basically under control trial, we have the setup of what we think is going to work, which is three minutes on the left, two minutes on the right. And this can be like, you know, a building stone. So now to see you can come on and build on it and compare it to something else. Is it better or not? So I think those three aspects are very important. The other aspect is very important is that we don't have only academic centers in the trial. We don't have like, like pattern stuff. We don't have those big giant academic centers. We have big giant academic centers, but we have small centers like mine and yours. And they are taking part of it, and, and Marcus, Mark Gerdish and, and others that are very active in it. So we are going to basically have a picture reflecting what's being done in America today for concomitant procedures in various levels of certain centers and so on and so forth. Right. One thing that I think is super important that you pointed out was the indication for atrial fibrillation. Because it seems like, I mean, we've all taught these courses. It seems like there is a gap in education whether it's your resident who just finished training, the junior surgeon, even some of the, the seasoned surgeons out there in the field, there is this gap of why do we treat AFib? How do we appropriately treat atrial fibrillation? What tools are available to treat it? And what are the results? Even though we have all this data saying it's undertreated and we have some studies that came out recently that tell us that managing left atrial appendage, things like this are super important. There does seem to be this gap in knowledge, and I think getting that indication with these specific approaches, if you will, with cryo will help us get out there and educate more and more and hopefully just make the whole field more aware and more comfortable with treating atrial fibrillation. Do you have a sense of when you may finish enrollment and when we could possibly see results from this trial? Yeah, I I have a sense. I think we are uh, fairly close. Probably okay. within the six, next six months, we'll finish enrollment. Depends on the interim analysis. Like all studies, the COVID really hurt us with enrollment. But now we are enrolling in a pretty good pace. Okay. Um, so we hope to finish enrollment. We, we are about close to about 70%. We are moving, moving along. Uh, we put you on, uh, as you know, a few weeks ago. So you and some other new two new centers that are about to start and run, I think, will help us tremendously in, in, in this. And, and we will be able to finish enrollment. And then, obviously, we need all patients to be followed for a year before we embark with final results. So fairly shortly, we will have some type of uh, information about it. Gotcha. So we're hoping maybe, I guess, fourth quarter of 2022 or first quarter of 2023, maybe that's something we could all be looking forward to. Yeah, I think if you enroll the last patient, let's say uh, during the first, second quarter of this coming year, 2022, then next AATS may, I mean, the, the one in 23, we will be able to present the data or something like that. But you right. know how it goes. It's an yeah. FDA trial, it's adjudicated and, right. and all those kind of things. But I think we'll have some good sense of what's going on. I can tell you so far what, what we see from, from the reports of the DCMB and the CC. It's going fairly well, and safety is definitely within what we were expecting. 
That's wonderful. Well, I'm sure we're all going to be looking forward to those results. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? We touched on the standalone. We touched on the cryo ice. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to hear from you specifically before we finish up the session? One thing, the, going back to the science of, of atrial fibrillation or the, the clinical aspect, I think that the Laos 3 trial taught us that the appendage is important, but it also taught, taught us that the appendage is not enough. Because if you look at any other big series of, standard, of concomitant procedures for atrial fibrillation, mine and others, the stroke rate at 5 and 10 years is probably not beyond 1%. So it's not the same as in, in a trial like that. So maybe it's a little higher and we miss some here and there, but it's definitely not 4% in three years. So AFib ablation is remaining really important and, and the appendage, the Laos trial showed me at least that the appendage is important, but it's not the only thing that's important if we are talking about it. So that's one, one thing. The second thing, for patients that may be listening, do your research and uh, seek for, if there is a need after a couple, at least after a couple of failed ablation and you are highly symptomatic, seek for some good advice from surgeons that are experienced in the field. Not necessarily go and, and shop for the, to do the procedure there, but even if you don't feel like you are someone that should have the procedure, Go and speak with a reasonable surgeon that is doing it for many years, like in your center, like in our center, like in others that, that are all over there, and get their opinion about where do you stand. Don't just accept this. Disease can be very devastating, symptomatically, stroke risk, and, and medication, and so on and so forth. Right. Absolutely. It's interesting what you just said reminds me of what happens in the mitral repair world, right? We have data that says if you can perform an excellent mitral repair, it's better than replacement. But a bad mitral repair is not as good as replacement. I find mm -hmm. it's, we're almost in that same space with atrial fibrillation. Surgeons who can treat atrial fibrillation appropriately, they can provide a really effective treatment for atrial fibrillation. If you end up going to a surgeon who's not experienced, who has conversions, who has complications, then you don't get the result that you're looking for. You know, kind of very similar to that mitral repair, mitral replacement population. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the point. I can see it uh, almost in every aspect of atrofibrillation surgery. I'll never take a patient, okay, to surgery if I don't believe, truly believe that based on my experience, I can help the patient. Again, this is a procedure that is, is provided to the patient to improve their quality of life and reduce the risk of devastating complication in the future. But that's not an imminent threat right this moment when they see it's not a left main disease or, or severe mitral insufficiency with low EF, low ejection fraction, and so on and so forth. So our responsibility to give patients good advice is really important. So when I tell a patient, listen, if I were you, I wouldn't do the procedure. I wouldn't have the procedure. Not mine and not that one or the others and so on and so forth. I think that's an important message to patients. And at the end of the day, they will benefit from this advice because they can then maybe decide to have a watchman and a AV nodal ablation. Right, right. And Even I think though that... they, think, they, they think so. So we have this responsibility. I think. And patients should not be shy of coming to us that, to get this kind of advice. 
Right. And I think it goes back to something you said earlier, which I thought was very keen, which was we shouldn't be judged on our success of atrial fibrillation by how many procedures we do, but rather the quality of the procedure and the outcome for the patient. So at the end of the day, it's about going to a surgeon who's experienced, but also has the outcomes to back up that surgical volume. So thank you so much for your time today. That was a wonderful conversation. I'm sure we're going to do another episode before your cryo-ice results come out. But until that time, I really hope we can do this again. Okay. Thank you, Armin. It was uh, great to be with you. As usual, uh, you show how much you know about the field. I know you're an excellent AFib surgeon as well. I watched you operating and it was a a real pleasure of mine. Good luck with our podcasts and it's really important. And I feel the honor to be your guest today. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ad. Thank you so much. See you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.